This week on The First Three, we'll be taking a look at the state of LGBTQ plus anime. We'll look at uh, a little bit of the history, we'll take a look at the current scene in Japan, uh, and we'll take a look at a couple of shows, one dug out from the depths of history at this point, uh, and one much more popular still to this day. Uh, all that and more this week's episode of The First Three. looking for queer narratives in Japan, um, there's really no better place than manga and anime. You can look back to the manga of the 70s, uh, including Hagiomoto's The Heart of Thomas or Takemiya Keiko's uh, The Song of Wind and Trees as kind of like early, um, I guess, shonen eye or like boys love kind of manga that then... Uh, in the case of uh, The Song of Winded Trees, was eventually adapted into an OVA in 1987. Um, these narratives would be seen as kind of challenging the heteronormativity uh, that had uh, shaped a lot of uh, Japan's cultural norms during the post-war period, um, in the, actually in the, even in the lead-up to the war. Uh, anything that was seen as homosexual was seen as kind of deviant and Usually uh, stamped out. So, um, for a good run there, there was uh, not a lot to challenge that norm. And so, by the 60s and 70s, you start to see Japan's counterculture really pick up. And um, one of those first things that you see is um, like queer narratives in in manga. And uh, it's a good starting point um, for what we you know come to see in in later years and now today with uh, a lot more. Uh, openness about uh, queer narratives in Japan. A lot of that uh, earlier stuff is a little bit melodramatic. It's a uh, uh, very big emotional moments, and um, like nowadays, it comes off as a little bit tropey. But um, it was it was important work that needed to kind of establish that uh, there were other ways to exist. It was also during this period in the, I guess, 80s, more so 80s and into the 90s, that we start to see a lot of the uh, fan fiction starting to develop in Japan uh, with uh, a lot of uh, pairing of, of popular characters from big, bigger uh, manga or anime uh, at conventions like uh, Comic Market, which at the time was a very small kind of local event in, in Tokyo there. Uh, before it really started to blow up. But in those kind of formative years of that event in the 80s and 90s there, you begin to see like a really strong female uh, participation in the fandom there, and that opened up a lot of the, uh, you know, queer narratives uh, that you see in, in a lot of the fan fiction uh, from that time. When we get into the 1990s, Japan's uh, economic bubble bursts and uh, this causes a lot of uh, soul searching and hand wringing and uh, those in power really wanted to try and solidify the the family unit again and uh, so this kind of like blossoming counterculture and the queer narratives that were starting to kind of become a, not quite mainstream but were definitely on you know on the edges where people could see them uh, you found that it, the culture was kind of like regressing backwards a little bit and uh, so uh, 
patriarchal kind of structures were providing the stability in uncertain times. And uh, it wasn't until 1997 when we get the arrival of revolutionary girl Utena uh, that you see like a really big, bold kind of uh, queer romance and battle story uh, anime show up on the scene. Utena, of course directed by the legendary Ikuhara Kunihiko, challenged gender norms and was just all kinds of queer. Um, so the focus on uh, Tenjo Utena, uh, who basically at every turn is refusing to kind of play the role of a typical, you know, schoolgirl. She wants to be a prince, despite being told that she can't be one. She refuses to wear the female school uniform, uh, much to the chagrin of the school's administration. Um, and her relationship with uh, Himemiya Anthi is the core relationship of the series. Um, so it is a centered entirely around a lesbian romance, which, you know, at the time was a pretty big deal. Um, and so it's no surprise that Utena uh, has the kind of like cultural staying power that it does. And we still, you know, talk about it to this day is because it was a huge deal and it influenced uh, a, a lot of creators going forward. Now, while Ikuhara was trying to elevate queerness and queer narratives uh, through his work, uh, what ends up kind of happening in the 2000s, I would say, is that we don't really get a lot of like solid representation. Um, you've still got kind of like an OVA scene of like one-off boys' love manga that get really popular and so they get a one-shot kind of like 25 30 minute long thing but um a lot of those have the kind of problematic tropes associated with boys love and on the other side of the coin what you're getting is a lot of shows that feature girls kissing um so a lot of like yuri kind of feeling uh anime start to appear in this period and uh that's where we're going to get into our first show which i dug out of the history vault here um and that is 2006's shimun now this show came out at a time when there were seemed to be a lot of shows that featured like an all-female cast and they either were all very much in love with each other or at the very least were kind of hinting that there were feelings kind of bubbling beneath the surface there um, shows like My Hime or My Otome, uh, Kanazuki no Miko, Yamito Boshi to Hon no Tabibito, Steel Angel Kurumi, Kyoshiro to Toa no Sora, um, or even something like Maho Shoujo Ririko Nanoha. Um, all these shows kind of had that vibe to them. Some of them were in like a sci-fi setting, which, you know, with a sci-fi setting, you can kind of like set the rules and you can kind of put your characters into whatever situation that you want. Um, others were a little bit more, yeah, kind of toned down, um, like, uh, Maria Watches Over Us was another one that was kind of like a more gentle kind of Yuri series, I guess. Um, but it was just a big thing where there were all of these shows that, uh, kind of had this queerness to them, but it felt like they couldn't quite escape the male gaze. Like, so unlike Utena, which had all of this kind of like thematic 
heft to it. Um, these all-girl shows from the mid-2000s don't seem to have as much conviction behind the themes that they're putting forth, which is why it feels a lot like fan service as opposed to kind of being something more revolutionary. And I say this knowing that Simoon actually has this kind of interesting quirk about the way its world works um, that could seem like it's something progressive or uh, a kind of like step forward in representation. And I think even on that front, it kind of falls flat. Uh, so let's get into the show itself. So uh, Simoon is a very jargon-heavy kind of uh, anime. It's um, sci-fi concepts are a bit much to kind of uh, take in all at once, and they're kind of thrown at you in the first three episodes of the series. Um, basically, the way it breaks down is uh, there's a war going on between the peaceful theocracy of Simulacrum, which is a very interesting name, um, and the industrialized nation of Argentum. Um, Argentum wants to know the secret behind the Simoon technology that uh, Simulacrum has. These are magical flying machines that are piloted by a pair of young girls um, who activate magical powers by, you know, flying the Simoon in formations that are capable of generating all kinds of interesting effects that um, can take out huge swaths of enemies. Um, so it's very OP kind of tech that this uh, simulacrum theocracy is holding on to here. Um, and we're kind of following the pilots of these Simoon. Um, and the really interesting quirk about this world is that um, everyone is born female and then chooses which sex they wish to become at the age of 17. So your first thought is, oh, this is a kind of an interesting progressive kind of take perhaps that um you know gender is something that you know isn't necessarily bound by a born sex identity that there is like a freedom and a fluidity to it all and uh you know on its surface kind of sounds good but in practice, what we find is that it leads to then a reaffirming of the gender binary and leads to an adult world that is entirely heteronormative, where uh, you have characters in the show saying that when they come of age, what they'll do is they'll, you know, choose to be a man so that they can still be with their, their lover uh, that they're with. And if we dig even further into this idea that uh, once you come of age, then you just become straight, uh, that has a history in Japanese literature. Going back to uh, around like the 1910s, 1920s, there was a big kind of push on uh, the idea that, you know, queerness could happen, but only when you were younger, when you weren't fully formed as an adult. And then once you're an adult, you become responsible and you become straight. Because a lot of homosexual content uh, from that particular time period would be seen as obscene material and would not be published or promoted. It was very underground uh, if it existed at all. 
And uh, so to kind of get around this and to explore queer narratives, uh, authors would uh, write stories of teenage love that could be read as very obviously queer in nature. Uh, but uh, the story would always resolve itself as, oh, well, we drifted apart and then we got married and we had kids and yada, yada, yada. It turns out we were straight all along. And this idea really kind of took hold that youth was a time when you could experience these kind of things, but then, you know, your straightness would kind of take over and, uh, you know, you would become a normal functioning adult or whatever. And it feels like a show like Simoon is using those kind of like codified themes of, of experimentation in youth um, or kind of a queerness in that kind of formative stage of life and isn't really trying to say anything more about the topic. It's kind of like using that framework really just as an out to uh, feature kind of fan service material for uh, the male audience. Okay, so let's actually get into Samoon a little bit more now. Uh, so, so no prologue business, no in-media res little scene or anything like this. It gets right to the opening theme first, uh, probably because it, this is one of the better animated parts of the show, uh, we get uh, a scene of two girls kissing right off the bat, so you know what kind of show you're getting here. Um, it does help that this opening theme is a banger from Ishikawa Chiaki, uh, the other half of Seesaw. Uh, so back in that time period, that was like a pretty good get. Um, her voice is excellent and uh, really fits with the kind of sci-fi vibes going on with the show. It's an opening theme that is very heavy on just showing us every female cast member, um, and as they're all kind of like flying by the screen very quickly, uh, it's basically a waifu for every typu. Um, so again, just kind of like laying out what kind of show this is and, and who it's for. So the uh, show opens up formally with kind of a long establishing shot of a post-apocalypse looking world, very drab metallic polluted looking place and um it's explaining the story of uh, how uh simulacrum came to be basically that they uh, had to flee uh to the the holy land as it were uh away from uh people that didn't like them so much i guess they were declared demons for the uh, simoon technology which they uh, had uh, obtained and um, so everyone who's part of Simulacrum lives on this uh, giant kind of floating ship. Uh, it's got these weird kind of like futuristic neoclassical vibes. So it kind of like looks old worldly, kind of ancient, you know, Rome, Greece, that kind of thing. But with modern or futuristic even uh, flourishes to it. So the show doesn't waste any time getting right into the action. Um, Simulacrum is coming under attack, and so the girls have to uh, sortie into their uh, Simoon craft. Um, so the Simoons are powered by a pair of girls, um, and we get a look at the kind of like main girl of this group, of the core Tempest group. Uh, it's Neveril, who is uh, 
the pink haired beauty who uh, gets the first kind of like beauty shots of the of the show um and uh, she steps up to her partner Amudia and uh, they deeply kiss so you know we've only been watching for i think maybe 2 minutes or so at this point and we've already got our first uh, a lesbian encounter so uh show's not wasting any time uh, showing you kind of what to expect even though we don't get a lot of action on that front uh subsequently after that so they're i guess hoping that everyone hangs around after seeing that one little kind of teaser that things might actually get spicy going forward um but uh the simoon take flight and these are some unfortunate uh, CG relics of the past here. They do not look great, and their shape is very unusual. Um, they're kind of like a gyroscopic-looking kind of shell kind of thing. Uh, not great. They don't really hold up too well. So the remaining pairs of girls also kind of kiss, but a little bit less uh, uh, dramatic than the first one that we see there. Uh, everyone gets into their crafts, they take to the skies, and uh, we learn about the formations that they fly in, the Ri Mahjong. Uh, there are apparently hundreds of these different flight formations, uh, patterns they can draw in the sky, and each one kind of creates a, a new magic spell of sorts. Um, so the girls are calling out pattern names and... Uh, performing them uh this all looks like fine nothing really too much to complain about here um we get some like very brief introductions for uh, some of the side characters here so you know uh, whichever girl happens to be your favorite will at least get a line of dialogue so you uh, kind of get an idea of what they sound like and uh, what their personality might be um so you can kind of start choosing your favorite Simoon wife, I guess. Um, now, the one of the interesting things I found about this show was the background art. Um, it has like an almost like 80s, 90s kind of like throwback feel to it. Like it's a big, solid, hand-drawn cell in the background uh, of, of all the shots here. And um, really flat, but like, you know, not terrible like it's as an aesthetic like kind of look to it like it, it was ser absolutely serviceable and um even though they were kind of like simple uh they they held up pretty well the character designs also you know were a bit spotty but when they're done right they look really good um it was kind of like a mixed bag of art styles and stuff uh with this show i found uh between the cg crafts the samoon themselves um the character design and then the background work it all kind of doesn't quite blend the way you'd like it to but it's interesting nonetheless and this show comes to us from studio dean who were they weren't necessarily known for consistent quality back in the day um still perfectly serviceable studio for sure though i mean they produced uh, higurashi which is one of my absolute favorite shows um, and even though a show like that in parts kind of looked a little bit janky at times, you know, they, they do a lot of things right with, you know, things like pacing and knowing where to allocate the resources when we don't need to have a character look super top notch. It's okay to kind of let them look a little bit, you know, melty or whatever in the background, like, okay, fine. 
um, you can tolerate that kind of stuff. And I think for the most part in Samoon, like it's the same kind of deal where some aspects of the art, you're like, okay, they're, that's kind of cheap. But, um, you know, when it counts, there are some really decent shots. Like I say, the backgrounds I actually was, I found pretty charming and, um, a couple of like close up shots of like eyes that were really well done. I noticed those, those definitely stood out to me. All these, all these girls seem to have some kind of, you know, magic power kind of flowing through them. And as such, it, it reflects in their eyes. And from time to time, you get like a real close up shot and really nicely done eye. So, you know, you take what you can get with a show like this. So the, uh, we're in the heat of battle here with the kind of invading force that seems to be always present in this show. They are always trying to get at the Samoon technology. It doesn't seem to end. Um, and uh, the battle kind of swings back and forth, but it's uh, really just a showcase of the Samoon's power here. We're kind of uh, being introduced to just how strong this technology is, and as such, it has to, uh, you know, really give us that feeling that this is this is really something that should be coveted in this world and um does a pretty good job although um what we do get here is uh neveril and amoria do this kind of like super attack it's uh emerald something i think is what they were calling it and um this unfortunately results in amoria uh, just eating it just biting the dust um and uh, this uh, causes uh, Nevril to uh, really spiral into this uh, depressed little uh, mini arc. It's um, revealed that uh, in the aftermath of the battle that three of the girls uh, have died, one of them being Amuria, and then two others. So, I mean, if your favorite waifu uh, ate it in the first episode, that's a real bummer. So everyone's kind of down in the dumps, and they're feeling the strain of this kind of never-ending war situation that they're faced with. Um, and a number of girls are talking about how they'll be leaving to go to the spring, which is the place that they will go to make their gender decision. Um, as uh, once the girls turn 17, they're allowed to either, you know, just leave for the spring and then go on and be a, a, a civilian after that. Or they can defer going to the spring and they can continue fighting uh, for uh, simulacrum. So uh, whichever they choose. And so a lot of girls after this kind of latest tough battle are thinking that uh, they might want to just uh, opt out and uh, head for the spring. But just as everyone is kind of all down and uh, not really feeling it anymore, uh, a new recruit shows up. A really a ginky kind of character, uh, Aeru, and uh, she is really excited to take on her new role as a Simoon pilot, and uh, you know it kind of changes the mood of the place a little bit. Um, and then that's kind of it for episode one. Uh, really zooms along, lots of plot heavy stuff, a lot of again like a lot of jargon, a lot of words get thrown out, and you're like, okay, I think I know what we're talking about here. But, um, yeah, kind of getting a handle on what's going on here is a little bit difficult at first. Um, but at least uh, the ending theme is brought to us by a Savage Genius, uh, one of those, like, mid-2000s, like, flash-in-the-pan, but 
delivered bangers pretty much every time they were on a, a show. So when you'd see them tied to a production, you were like, okay, well, at least the theme song is going to be decent. And uh, so this one is also uh, pretty good. So episode two kicks off, and um, there are more spy planes uh, from the enemies that are trying to gather intel on the Samoons. Uh, so already we're kind of like right into another uh, fight situation. And uh, this is where uh, Aeru is uh, trying to make her mark, I guess. So Aeru just kind of hops into one of the uh, training Samoons that they have and uh, takes down all the spy planes. Um, now what Neveril notices uh, about uh, Aeru's flying is that... Uh, Without even realizing it, Aeru has kind of pulled off the Emerald Re Majon, uh, so kind of one of the more advanced uh, techniques of, of flying the Samoon or whatever. And so uh, uh, Aeru's got this kind of like natural talent, I guess is what we're trying to show off here, and uh, how uh, this kind of uh, piques uh, Neveril's interest, even though she's still kind of down in the dumps about losing her partner. And this episode kind of serves as the kind of more local scale setting and world building. So we get uh, Aeru getting kind of shown around uh, what the uh, different a aspects of the uh, kind of flying battleship that they're on is, is all about. Uh, and this is also where we get an explanation as to what the spring is in a little bit more detail uh, because uh, one of the girls, Airy, has decided that she is going to go to the spring and uh, Neveril being the kind of like leader of this group is like okay well I'll I'll go with you to the spring and so this gives them a lot of time to kind of talk over what the spring is and how it's like God's will to either make you a man or a woman and you know whatever you kind of you you can hope for the best but you're not exactly guaranteed to come out of the process with the you know gender that you uh, want uh, to choose going forward so it is kind of all up to uh tempest spatium's will or something so that that gets thrown around a lot it's interesting here that airy who is making the choice at the spring isn't entirely sure uh which way they kind of want to go with this um she thinks that she might want to be a man for various reasons of job security and uh, kind of what the the role might entail in that society, and it seems like it's a very patriarchal society, so being a man would have kind of those benefits, but she thinks, well, I've been a girl all my life, and so do I want to be a woman when I uh, change over here? And um, then we get a uh, a scene of Aerie, uh walking into the spring. It's kind of, it's, it's an interesting couple of shots here, and uh, then uh, we get a hard cut to outside the spring, and Aerie is now Aerith. Uh, she has been kind of reborn, or the, the god has willed that she will be uh, she will be a man going forward. And uh, uh, this uh, kind of scares her, in fact. And she, she breaks down in tears, and uh, Neveril tries to comfort her. It's hard to kind of get a sense of what this scene is trying to say to us, the viewer here. Um, you know, Aerie kind of seems to regret her decision to come to the spring to, you know, kind of start her life as a man. I mean, this could be taken very negatively, pulled out of context to say that, uh, you know, uh, that she's re regretted 
transitioning, you know, which is a hot topic these days. And, uh, you know, it, that kind of sends like a bad message on that front. So it's kind of like a, a thoroughly confusing introduction to this whole concept of choosing your gender when you come of age. So it kind of like makes our first encounter with this concept to be like a very strange one, uh, one that uh, seems to be filled with nothing but, you know, suffering for these girls here. There isn't any kind of element of positivity about, you know, having chosen uh, a gender that you believe in or anything like this. And so um, it leaves a really uh, kind of strange echo kind of going through this whole series from here on where you're like, this is something that should be interesting, and yet it's kind of like hanging over everybody this whole time as opposed to being something that could be shaped more positively. All right, so in episode three, this is basically the uh, selecting new pairs episode. So after the losses of the uh, last battle against the enemy forces and with the uh, departure of Ari, what we've got is kind of this gap in a lot of the pairings. And so uh, there's a big ceremony that is part of uh, pair selection. And there's just kind of like a lot of back and forth between all the different uh, girls here who are all jockeying for certain people, people that they like, people that they have crushes on, uh, people that think they could work well together with. Um, so that's kind of the driving force of this third episode. Um, and I think it's trying to lead towards either setting up Ayaru and Neveril as like a pair, like as the main pair, or kind of setting them up potentially to be as kind of like rivals or having different philosophies on the battling and the whole Shimun technology and the use of the uh, kind of air glyphs, I guess they are, uh, that make up their... Uh, formations or whatever. Meanwhile, in the background, there's kind of like this constant din of, of war going on. The uh, uh, enemy forces are like always nearby. They're kind of lobbing shots at the uh, simulacrum battleship. Um, so this idea that they can kind of like never escape the, the fighting is kind of well done in that the enemy always feels like they are close and, uh, uh, trying to gain access to the Samoon technology, but at least in these first three episodes, their motivation, the enemy's motivation, is never really expanded upon other than that they want the technology. So it doesn't really do much for who this kind of, you know, counterforce is, uh, but uh, they're just kind of this blank slate uh, at this point in the show in the first three episodes. So, you know, if you're just watching these first few to kind of get a, a sense of what the show is like, you're left hanging on that front for sure. Now, the Simoon pilots aren't uh, alone out here. There are a few adults who seem to be kind of like running the show, um, and none of them at this point are putting off like bad vibes or anything, but you can't help but think that they're not working in the best interest of the uh, Simoon girls who are giving their lives uh, to fight this war. Um, but uh, they're left pre pretty ambivalent at this point, and uh, they uh, spout a lot of 
philosophy jargon and stuff and uh, you know they talk about their faith and uh, what all of that means but uh, uh, again kind of like vague and strange and distant and so we don't really get too strong a sense of like what their motivation is either uh, we've got a bunch of uh, you know cute or pretty looking girls who are uh, you know the instruments of war here and uh, you know by this point you have heard enough from uh, each of them to kind of maybe make a pick as to which one you like the best I think like I mean this it's such a weird show but it feels like it really was of that time and that there were a bunch of shows that kind of had the same vibes to them all of them get labeled as a Yuri, so you've got, you know, t some expectation that there's going to be some, you know, love or longing between female characters in it, but, you know, these shows, unlike a couple of Yuri shows that you would see nowadays, um, these ones don't have any kind of, like, real weight to the relationships or anything like that. You're not really seeing these girls as being like real queer people in the world they're just kind of like living in this strange sci-fi setting where they have to kiss to operate these machines to fight a war and like that's it and you just are waiting for them to hop into the uh simoons and and kiss and 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 then that's what you get you know and there's a couple of you know kind of fan service shots here and there uh but uh you know when the end result, especially of a show like this one, is that, you know, everyone basically becomes uh, straight and uh, all of these relationships that they have are, are meaningless once they turn 17 and they visit the spring, um, it kind of, like, lessens any kind of impact that they might have, especially when there isn't anything in the writing to suggest that uh, they're is more of a message behind what's going on. It really is just to uh, titillate the uh, the male fan base for a show like this. So that's Simoon in a, a nutshell, I guess. Um, kind of a relic of a, you know, lost era of not exactly representation in any kind of meaningful way, but... Um, girls do kiss and they declare their love for one another so i guess that's something but like it wasn't really until i'd say like the late 2000s that you start to see a little bit of a shift in what what yuri could be in an anime production at least you know like where they were green lighting a series um that was kind of diving into more kind of like lesbian themes as opposed to just being uh this kind of fluffy fan service kind of material um i'm thinking of like aoi hana like the sweet blue flowers that was around 2009 um that was one of the first shows that i had seen where i was like oh this feels like something different even though it's kind of following the same will they won't they uh kind of vibes of some of the other shows that came before it uh this was one where you're like okay this is a step in the right direction but yeah, Simoon, um, really mixed bag of sci-fi jargon, uh, an interesting concept uh, when it came to the uh, choosing your gender at 17, just executed poorly, unfortunately. 
um, and uh, a kind of limited animation budget uh, really detracted from what, you know, could have been like a series that, you know, uh, at times looked pretty decent, uh, but uh, more often than not fell victim to just having to cut corners and uh, uh, suffered from that. So I don't know uh, if you're interested in looking back at uh, kind of a weird series from the 2000s that kind of had some Yuri vibes to it, like you could probably do worse. Um, but uh, yeah, this one really kind of strikes me as very of its time um, and nothing really too special. So the second show that we're going to look at really needs no introduction as it was a huge hit, uh, both in Japan and globally. Um, by 2016, you're starting to see kind of like the tide shift towards queer narratives that are much more grounded and less filled with the kind of more tragic or toxic tropes that seem to, uh, make up the bulk of queer narratives prior to this period. And I think all of this came about as a result of studios uh, and production companies finally realizing that uh, female fan bases make up uh, a good chunk of the viewing audience. Um, and when it comes to fan creation at events like Comic Market, uh, the split is almost 50-50, if not uh, favoring uh, women more so now when it comes to who is participating as uh, a seller um, and even in the attendees themselves. Um, and so it's kind of a double-edged sword in that it's uh, getting us towards more representation, but also businesses kind of capitalizing on a sector of the market that they had been undervaluing for far too long. So you know, you have to take the, the good with the bad, I guess. And even though it is kind of driven by profit, um, the fact that we get to see more shows produced uh, with queer narratives, I, I think is, is a, a net positive uh, that we can, you know, kind of work with. So uh, a worthwhile uh, trade-off, I would say. And um, so, of course, we're talking about Yuri on Ice, which was 2016's runaway hit. Yuri on Ice dominates the fan scene for years after the show airs. It's pretty nuts. I was in Japan talking to uh, doujinshi artists uh, in 2018, and overwhelmingly the number one series was still Yuri on Ice, even though there's a plethora of, of shows that uh, kind of fans gravitate towards for when they're creating their uh, fan-made works. Uh, Yuri on Ice was still hugely popular, uh, even then, um, and I think remains to this day one of the bigger categories uh, still um, as fans wait for the movie that is still in limbo, I think, at this point. Uh, no real updates on that one for quite a while now, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, Yuri on Ice was a sensation, um, both uh, in Japan and internationally, just a huge hit. It was uh, handled by Studio Mappa, so... Um, a little earlier on in their run, I guess. Now they're just this juggernaut who does anything and everything. But uh, that was when they were still just kind of a little more selective with their properties. And um, so this was kind of a, a shot in the dark for them and uh, really uh, paid off with a great team kind of working uh, on the project as well. 
And what this show really felt like was a recognition of all of the years of fandom, uh, of people pairing characters together, like writing queer fan fiction, and being kind of validated on the on the big stage uh, with a, a production that said, yeah, we're going to ship our two main characters. We're just, we're going to go as far as they're going to let us go here. So how does Yuri on Ice hold up when put to the first three test? Uh, turns out, does a pretty good job. So the show kicks off with the opening theme, this kind of trumpeting pomp and circumstance kind of theme uh, brought to us by Dean Fujioka uh, that perfectly fits in with kind of like a Winter Olympics figure skating kind of feel and is um, backed up with some really impressive uh, skating animation going on. Uh, so sets a high bar right off the start, which is cool. We open on the Grand Prix Finals, one of the major events on the figure skating calendar, and the acclaimed skater Viktor Nikforov has just won the gold medal and is contemplating retirement. Meanwhile, uh, the nervous bundle of energy that is Katsuki Yuri, our uh, main character, uh, was a bit off his game, and uh, the uh, commentary wonders if perhaps he might be washed. Um, Yuri retreats to a washroom to call home, and it's a really kind of great claustrophobic shot of Yuri in the, uh, the stall, and, uh, it kind of, you know, brings us into the scene and makes us feel that kind of, you know, pent-up, uh, nervous, anxious energy that, uh, Yuri is feeling. He gets interrupted by another figure skater, Yuri Plisetsky. Uh, who is the winner of the Junior Grand Prix Final. And uh, his intro is really good. It makes a strong character statement here. He's, he's very, it's very stylish, and uh, it uh, contrasts with uh, Yuri's kind of nervousness. Uh, Yuri is this kind of like snarky little kid uh, with a lot of confidence. Having somewhat uh, tanked his uh, performance here at the Grand Prix Finals, Yuri is... Uh, not in great spirits, but uh, in the kind of post-event hustle and bustle on his way uh, out of the uh, event space, uh, Yuri happens to see uh, Victor walk past, and Victor being his longtime idol, uh, he, he's hoping to maybe speak with him, but uh, as uh, Victor politely, or perhaps it's a slight dig, uh, uh, asks uh, Yuri if he would like a kind of a commemorative photo to mark the occasion. Uh, Yuri gets uh, all out of sorts and uh, flees, uh, you know, realizing that maybe he was kind of foolish for wanting to meet his idol so badly. We then get a big old flash forward one year later to uh, Hasetsu in Kyushu. This is a uh, not a real place, but it is based on a real place. And uh, it really shows. There's a lot of uh, great uh, establishing shots of this little town that are very clearly inspired from uh, real locations around the real city of Karatsu. So uh, Yuri is returning home for the first time in quite a while, and uh, he meets up with his uh, teacher, Minako-sensei, who greets him at the station and uh, she kind of talks about what the state of Hasetsu is at this time, 
less kids are interested in the ballet classes, less kids are skating, people are moving to the big cities. So it's got all those kind of thematic elements that make up a lot of these like small town Japan anime. Yuri is uh, pretty anxious about returning home. You know, he's kind of like the hometown hero and uh, he feels like he's let everybody down. So, you know, when people come up to him and they're trying to show their support, he's very you know, nervous about this because he feels like he's really let everybody in uh, Hussets down. So uh, it makes him an immediately kind of like likable and relatable protagonist. Um, does a good job of, you know, getting the viewer on his side, you know, in, in that sense. So his family runs an onsen called the Utopia, which I think is pretty funny. You being the, uh, well, a word that's used for uh, to describe hot water or a hot spring of some kind. So the uh, kind of the play on words there uh, was kind of funny. And uh, again, another like shot that's very clearly a has a real world uh, reference uh, in it. Uh, really nice little shot of the the entrance to the onsen. Clearly, uh, someone took a photo of a spot that they had found in uh, Karatsu and uh, wanted to put it into the show. So a lot of those kind of shots are in this series, and um, you do notice them, and they're very cool. So Yuri is coming home because he's really at a loss for what to do. Um, so he uh, takes to the, the local rink to skate for a bit, where he runs into his childhood friend, Yu-chan. Um, a little bit of a flashback to them growing up, and uh, they're in skating lessons together, um, meanwhile, we're cutting to Victor going for gold at the world championships. So there's this kind of, uh, contrast of Victor still on, on, on a roll and, uh, Yuri just, uh, skating to an empty crowd, I guess there's, there's, there's no one at the, at the local rink. And this is where we get our first look at some of the, uh, uh skating animation in action and, uh, does look pretty good, all things considered. I think that the team did an excellent job of bringing the, you know, kind of the dynamic aspects of uh, figure skating to life here. Um, the uh, the jumps look pretty good. I don't really know a whole lot about figure skating, but uh, everything looks pretty, you know, crisp and well animated. At times, the uh, skating appears to be a little bit detached from the ice surface itself. The got the uh, friction just a little bit wrong but um and sometimes the perspective gets a little bit wonky it uh there's a bit of off scale stuff going on here but i mean all in all it looks pretty good so you can generally kind of forgive it because uh the effort being made there is is pretty significant and uh it, it does you know on the whole look pretty good so big upside if you're going to be featuring a sport in your anime uh, it's got to look pretty good, and uh, Yuri on Ice does do that, and that's consistent throughout the series. Um, I don't think they really skimp on the uh, skating too much. I think there's a couple of recycled animations from time to time, but for the most part, it all looks pretty cool. So uh, Yuri skates uh, one of Victor's routines, and uh, unbeknownst to him, uh, this gets uh, recorded by uh, Yu-chan's uh, kids uh, who then upload it to social media of some sort and then the 
Yuri's copy of Victor's uh, program uh, goes viral. Um, and then all of a sudden we get word that uh, an attractive foreigner has shown up in town and uh, is there at the uh, onsen. And to Yuri's shock, it's Victor who appears. Uh, he's in Hasetsu and he wants to coach Yuri. The episode's got a nice pace to it. It really kind of keeps things moving along. And it is very much focused on Yuri and where he is uh, mentally. We want to get kind of invested in him early on. And so this is, you know, showing his kind of disappointment at his performance in the Grand Prix final. And then kind of we get to know about what his life is like. And now that he's chosen to perhaps uh, give up skating, uh, what does that look like for him? What does that mean for him? How does he go home and face his family? Um, so a lot of investment in Yuri with only kind of like this little sprinkling of, of the uh, other characters that are going to factor in Victor and the uh, Russian Yuri. Um, so episode two starts off with a little flashback to Victor leaving Russia for Japan and how this decision is starting to uh, make its way through the skating community and people are thinking, oh, is uh, so Victor's definitely retiring. And it was the viral video of Yuri's skate uh, that uh, kind of convinced Victor that he wanted to uh, make his way to Hasetsu to uh, coach Yuri. We then flip back real quickly to Russia and uh, Yuri Plisetsky, uh, the young punk, hearing the news that uh, Victor is taking off to Japan, becomes quite incensed because... Uh, he had been hoping that uh, Victor would coach him instead. And uh, it's here that I, I realized that all of Yuri's scenes are, are played with this like noisy, feedback-riddled uh, electric guitar uh, bits. Um, so like really ramping up his like edgy emo kind of uh, character vibes, which I thought was pretty, pretty smart. It's a good, good character theme. So Victor's kind of being really casual. He's uh, living it up at the, at the onsen. Uh, chowing down on uh, the katsudon that the joint is famous for and uh, uh, talks to Yuri kind of about uh, what, what his coaching style is going to be like. And it's here that we uh, really get to experience kind of like what Victor's energy is like. And boy, it is pretty overtly sexual. Uh, he's uh, voiced by Junichi Suabe, who has like the perfect, like deep sexy guy kind of voice for this role um and uh, victor's walking around the onsen with his like short robe that always seems to be like slipping off of him kind of like revealing little bits of skin and stuff and like it's all way too much for yuri to handle the team at mappa definitely did a really good job of making sure that like victor is always looking like impossibly handsome um so uh, you can really see why, like, Yuri starts to fall for him. You know, he's just this, like, super Ikemen guy um, that, you know, no one can resist. So, it you know, drawing him to be so handsome and then having everyone in the indie world of Yuri on Ice be completely smitten with him, it's fully believable. Alrighty, so after laying down the ground rules for what the training is going to look like going forward if Victor is going to coach Yuri... Uh, they head down to the local rink, which is the Ice Castle Hasetsu, which is just a very cute name. Um, and they set up shop for to practice, and uh, uh, 
we get a little bit more backstory on how Victor was already the number one skater in the world and how Yuri looked up to him and uh, uh, Yu-Chen and uh, her family are all kind of there at the arena and they're all really stoked to see uh, uh, Victor there in person. Um, but unfortunately, Press also finds out that Victor is here in town and uh, they swarm the joint. Uh, so a lot of uh, chaos with the press and whatnot. And uh, meanwhile, we kind of just get this Yuri training montage as he kind of gets himself back into shape after kind of neglecting his uh, routines uh, over the last year or so. This is also when Yuri Plisetsky shows up, and the two Yuris are going to compete for Victor's time in a big old showdown at the Ice Castle. Um, but before that happens, we return to the onsen, uh, where Yuri Plisetsky will also be staying. Um, the Yuri-Yuri kind of name confusion is a bit much for uh, Yuri's family, and so they decide to give Plisetsky the uh, nickname of uh, Yurio to uh, differentiate the two, which is uh, uh, like a little version of his name, I guess, and uh, Victor likes to poke fun at this. So the next day, Victor introduces Yuri and Yurio to the music that they will be performing to, um, and uh, they're two kind of like different takes on the same piece of music, and as such they have very different vibes, and uh, both Yuri and Yurio are pretty sure which one they would like to uh, perform to, but Victor, of course, switches it up and gets them to uh, perform uh, with the uh, music that doesn't quite suit their personality necessarily, but might be able to, you know, coax something out of his, uh, you know, potential students here. So that's it for episode two there, and uh, it does a good job of kind of bringing in more characters into the mix, uh, slowly kind of expanding that world, and... Uh, starting to move the plot a little bit at least you know so let's just keep on rolling through into episode three here uh so here victor shows off what each of these programs uh will look like agape and eros um so yurio is going to be taking on agape which is kind of this more uh unconditional love is kind of the theme whereas uh, Yuri is going to uh, be performing Eros, which is more of a passionate desire uh, kind of love. And uh, Yuri is just not ready for this. You can tell he's very uncertain of his ability to uh, project this kind of erotic and uh, sexual, sensual kind of performance that uh, Victor is looking to get out of him. There are definitely a lot of shots um, that are kind of like you know, suggestively set. We've got a lot of between-the-leg shots. We've got a lot of focuses on uh, butts and stuff. Uh, so the direction is definitely uh, teasing the potential relationship uh, between Victor and Yuri, even at this early stage. Director Sayo Yamamoto wants you to keep kind of thinking about uh, this relationship that's building here. Um, and it's doing so with some, you know, very nice, nicely done shots. So here we get a little bit of Yuri's um, anxiety and uh, lack of confidence uh, kind of coming through here. He's not sure if he can pull off this routine. He also talks to Victor about how he can't land the quad Saokao in competition. Uh, and uh, Victor says that as his 
coach, uh, it will be his job to give Yuri that confidence. And then he gets all close to Yuri and uh, makes him all flustered and, 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 and nervous and stuff. Um, so uh, another kind of moment where the tension kind of gets ratcheted up um, in the relationship between Victor and Yuri that is blossoming here. So here we get a little practice montage again. Yuri talking to Yurio about uh, what he might be able to do to land the quad that he's trying to hit. Um, and uh, Yurio at first uh, being pretty prickly as, you know, as he's wont to do. Uh, it's well established at this point that he's kind of this punk ass. Um, but maybe hints of a bit of a softer side. He decides to uh, try and help uh, Yuri get over this hump here with trying to land this jump. So while Yurio's doing a pretty good job with the routine, uh, the agape that he's been uh, saddled with, um, Yuri is still kind of struggling with trying to get this Eros theme kind of down. And a uh, detail that I had forgotten about uh, was that uh, Victor had told Yuri to try and, you know, find something that he was deeply passionate about, something that he truly uh, desired to kind of serve as an inspiration to get there with this Eros routine. And I completely forgot that Yuri uh, starts imagining a, a Katsudon as kind of this object of desire for him. Uh, so uh, a lot of lines about how he's going to show Victor the uh, Eros of the Katsudon, which just very funny. Um, so we get to the big competition uh, it looks like uh, uh, Yurio and Yuri are making progress here. Um, and then we get this little uh, moment between Yuri and his, uh, his former coach slash teacher, Minako-sensei, uh, where Yuri goes to her for advice on how to move more feminine. Because uh, uh, unlike Victor, who when performing the Eros routine for Yuri, uh, does it with a real kind of like sexy playboy kind of uh, vibe to it. Uh, Yuri doesn't feel like he can pull that off and that it's more natural for him to kind of move in a more feminine manner, perhaps. And that, that would be um, his preferred way of expressing this kind of, you know, erotic sexual kind of energy, which is interesting. An interesting thing that, that Yuri realizes about himself here. The episode ends with Yuri winning the little competition. Uh, Yurio takes off in disgust, uh, but he does vow to win the Grand Prix Finals this year. Uh, so uh, setting up kind of like what the long-term narrative is going to be in that uh, it's all going to kind of culminate at the Grand Prix Finals again. Uh, Yurio is established now as the kind of rival to Yuri, and we'll see you know, that big showdown kind of at the end point of the series. So that's kind of being telegraphed here. Um, and uh, the kind of relationship between Yuri and Victor is starting to build. Um, so you've got kind of all these elements that have been set in place. And uh, by the end of the third episode here, uh, you can kind of see where the series is going to go from here. Yuri and, and Victor are going to work together. Uh, we're going to you know, make our way towards the Grand Prix Final, which means performing, you know, in some smaller uh, events along the way. Uh, Yurio is going to be the big bad at the end, I guess. So 
a very solid first three episodes that does a good job of kind of establishing everything that this show is going to be and uh, what you can kind of expect going forward. So it does a really good job of giving you enough to make a judgment call on. So, you know, is, is Yuri on Ice good? Yeah, it definitely is. Um, it is this, like, kind of evolution of boys' love stuff. You know, it's, it's a very more grounded and, and, and realistic relationship uh, between Victor and Yuri that builds over the course of the series. Uh, it's a sports anime as well, you know, and that, you know, kind of is another reason for people to want to watch the show. It does a good job of uh, portraying the sport that it does, even if figure skating isn't the uh, sport that you uh, might normally watch. Uh, it does a, a great job of, you know, bringing it to life in animation, and as such, it makes it you know, more engaging as a viewer to uh, watch. So for all intents and purposes, while Yuri on Ice was and is still like a, a fairly big hit when it comes to uh, queer representation in anime, um, what I find interesting is that you haven't seen like a lot of shows since then that have been quite as big a phenomenon. And you would think that by now, something would have come along that would have been even bigger or just as big and just as popular because you can't really get away from Yuri on Ice. Like, even to this day, it's still a... There's a huge fan community uh, that are still making fan-made works for the series. Um, there is still a movie looming. Uh, it's somewhere in production. It seems to be kind of lost uh, at this time. Uh, and uh, unfortunately... It is kind of tying up Sayo Yamamoto, the director of uh, the series. She's uh, been tagged to do this movie, and it's just, it's nowhere. And she hasn't been uh, given any work since, which is honestly a little bit strange. I know that uh, she has been more vocal than most people uh, uh, when it comes to how much pushback she got from the studio when making Yuri on Ice, because there are a couple moments that are like just somewhat censored as the uh, show goes on, including a kiss between uh, Yuri and Victor that is, you know, it, we're watching it, and you can kind of put it together that it happens, but she wanted it to be much more, you know, obvious and upfront and kind of this big moment, uh, and uh, she was forced to kind of pull back a little bit, and she was vocal about uh, these kind of changes that the production company wanted to make and I don't know it seems just kind of weird that this you know very talented director uh, who her track record is on the three shows that she has worked on has, has been great you know a steady kind of uh, rise up I suppose uh, she started off in 2008 with Michiko and Hachin then uh, took on a take on the Lupin the Third series, focusing on Fujiko Mine's character. And this was a really stylish, very cool series from 2012. Um, and then she gets this Yuri on Ice project in 2016, and it is one of the biggest hits uh, in anime. You know, it uh, topped sales. Uh, it has huge fan involvement. Uh, for all intents and purposes, it's, it's this—it's a hit. It's a runaway hit of a of a show, 
and that was six years ago now, and so they've kind of like tied her to this movie that is uh, doesn't seem like it's going to ever be made, or if it is, they're waiting for like the the hype to die down for Yuri, and then you know release it maybe, and then say, well, look, it kind of bombed or something. Like, I don't know. It just feels like they've kind of stuck her in purgatory, which doesn't seem very fair. Um, but also kind of speaks to where Japan is with regards to like LGBTQ plus representation, you know, like there's these big moments that hit and then they're just kind of like pulled back, um, you know, just, just enough by that kind of like conservative, uh, politics that makes up a lot of Japan's cultural scene. So while we have, you know, great shows like uh, Gundam Witch from Mercury um, and one of my uh, favorite uh, films, uh, Stranger by the Shore, which is just a- an excellent kind of uh, uh, film. Uh, and, uh, you know, these, these, that look, these are productions that look really good. They center, you know, queer relationships. And it just feels like they're, I don't know if they're being sanitized a little bit or just not being able to be fully expressive or going all the way out into the mainstream but something is holding all of this stuff back just a little bit and even though like the tide does seem to be turning in japan with regards to uh lgbtq plus rights and uh you know same-sex marriage is looking like it's close to being a thing in japan finally um Yuri on Ice really should have opened the floodgates. And, you know, while there is more queer anime and manga out there now, uh, it's not making quite the cultural impact that I think it should be. And while we're, like, more willing to celebrate a show like Yuri on Ice here in the, in the West... Um, fandom in Japan tends to kind of go underground a little bit. And so you go to uh, events. I was in Japan in 2018, and so Yuri on Ice was still a really hot property. And um, I would be speaking with uh, some female creators of doujinshi or like fan-made comics, basically. And um, when they talk about their fandom and what it meant to them, it was really coming from a place of passion. But... Uh, the kind of like other side of it was that they didn't want anybody else to know about this. If I was going to, you know, write something about uh, an artist that I had been speaking with, they wanted to make sure that they could remain anonymous because they wouldn't want uh, their coworkers to find out that they were into this kind of stuff or their uh, family members even. So there's still this kind of like stigma about uh, like queerness, I guess, in Japan that, that, uh, has yet to be addressed in any meaningful way. So as much as, you know, there's more shows that are being produced like this, um, if uh, everyone's too scared to talk about them, then there's just not going to be any progress. So hopefully things can improve soon, and hopefully uh, Sayo Yamamoto can uh, be freed from her Yuri on Ice prison so that she can um, maybe head another amazing series and kind of, uh, you know, knock another one out of the park. Because, I mean, I think we're missing her uh, talent out there in the world. Alrighty. 
But that, I think, is going to wrap it up for uh, this week's episode. We took a look at a couple of shows, one older, one a little bit newer, uh, looking at uh, trying to see if the kind of LGBTQ plus representation is looking a little bit better these days, and I gotta say, it definitely uh, does. Uh, shows like Simoon uh, were, felt like they were like a dime a dozen back in the mid-2000s there. I don't think they actually were, but uh, they were the Yuri content of the time, and uh, just didn't really reflect any kind of actual queerness in any kind of way other than to serve as fan service. So, um, what we're seeing is definitely some improvements in that regard here. Um, Yuri on Ice, definitely deserving of all the praise that it gets. It looks good. Uh, the central relationship is solid, and, um, definitely see why it took off and was such a huge hit. Um, yeah. So that's gonna do it for this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, next week I think I might try and tackle Oshinoko. Kind of a huge hit, and kind of a weird one in that it started off with a full-length movie that you had to watch uh, for a first episode, making it a very interesting first three kind of uh, case. So uh, we'll maybe take a look at that one, and uh, see if we can tack on some others as well. Uh, but that's going to do it. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, as always, uh, check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash the first three, and we'll uh, see you on the next one.